We'll get started. So this is serverless at scale, design patterns and optimizations. My name is Roberto, thank you all for coming. If you find this topic interesting, or if you found even just the title of today's talk interesting, I think here are some other sessions that you may also find valuable. Um, there are certain considerations or um, optimizations that, uh, such as Lambda-specific, or rather Java-specific guidance for Lambda that I did not include in today's talk because I knew it was covered elsewhere. So um, just to make note. And to level set on the content that I have for you all today, this is a 300 level talk. So you will see me showing some real world design patterns. You will see some small optimizations that really kind of a, may seem trivial when you see them, but will have a significant impact either on performance or cost uh, at scale. And you'll see some pseudocode. Uh, you will not, however, see me defining um, what serverless is at AWS or uh, giving general overviews of some of the core AWS services on the serverless platform, so AWS Lambda or API Gateway, um, Amazon SQS, et cetera. So hopefully that's what you're all expecting. If that's a surprise to any of you, then um, you're not gonna hurt my feelings if uh, you, know, you find there's somewhere else that, that you'd rather be. So let's walk through a journey that a customer may go through with an early serverless application as that application starts to experience scale. So this is a pretty common early serverless architecture that we see, especially for applications that are migrating um, to serverless for the first time, maybe an existing application that was um, running on another um, style of compute, maybe it's um, running on-prem or on EC2, and that application is being moved to serverless. This is um, a pretty common architecture that, that we see. So the characteristics of this architecture, it is a synchronous API, so Amazon API Gateway is hosting a REST endpoint, and that uh, fronts a Lambda function, has Lambda as the backend integration, uh, responding synchronously to requests from the front end. Using a relational database for your persistent storage, so here Amazon RDS, using any one of the engines, uh, database engines that RDS supports. Credentials to access that database are stored in uh, a secret store, such as AWS Secrets Manager. Um, you know, we don't recommend that you have your uh, secrets, such as database credentials, hard-coded uh, in your application code, and so it's best to externalize those, and so you may have your credentials stored there. Logs from your logic running in your Lambda functions, so, you know, whatever you write to standard out from Lambda gets streamed to CloudWatch logs, as do any custom metrics that you want to emit from your code. So, you know, Lambda will by default emit some default metrics, but it's common for customers to have additional metrics that have business-specific meaning to you and to write those directly to CloudWatch metrics from within your Lambda. Examples of architectures like this may be you know, write-heavy applications, such as order submission or um, transaction submission workflows, or perhaps read-heavy applications, like, uh, you know, based on how a user interacts with a, a front-end, it submits a query against a database, and then the results are kind of painted on the web page as a response, things like that. So, we go, we, we design this architecture, we migrate the application, perhaps, to serverless, and at first, things look Scale's increasing a little bit, we're getting some traffic, we're high-fiving, everything's going wonderful, this is the greatest. And we didn't load test, this is serverless. I've seen the slides, it scales by itself, it's elastic, everything's, what, nothing could happen. Why would I even test it? It's gonna work great, there can be no problems. But then scale increases, and we start seeing some strange behavior we didn't see at lower scale. And we're saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we overlooked some details or some nuances of our design or of the services we're using that are now being exposed at higher scale. So what might some of those observations be? Things that you didn't see at lower scale that now you are seeing. First, maybe you're seeing timeouts. There are a few places in that architecture I showed where we implement timeouts. So Amazon API Gateway, has uh, a maximum integration timeout, so that's the time that the, the 
um, integrations, what sits behind your API Gateway endpoint has to respond to a synchronous call of 29 seconds. So in the, in the example that I showed, the Lambda function that's sitting behind that API Gateway endpoint has up to 29 seconds, and it's configurable, to respond and send a synchronous response back. Maybe you weren't getting that timeout before, and maybe you start to. Similarly, um, AWS Lambda has a maximum execution time for a given function invocation of 15 minutes. Also configurable, 15 minutes is the maximum. So maybe you were not having your function timeout at lower scale, but now you are. And maybe now you're finding that you're having connectivity issues to your relational database. So as traffic has increased, you're now noticing either connection errors or various flavors of errors trying to connect to your relational database, and you're overwhelming that downstream in a way that you weren't at lower scale. Maybe you're seeing throughput dilution. Maybe you know, for the same set of traffic, um, you're now finding that you're not getting the same throughput through your, your application that you used to. Maybe now, even though Lambda scales beautifully, whatever the dependencies were, the downstreams that, that your application code that lives in that Lambda function interacted with, maybe couldn't scale along with it. So you're swarming downstreams. In this case, it was a relational database, could be anything. Sometimes we have folks that move applications like this, like I showed earlier, to um, serverless, but it still connects to some on-prem resources. And so your Lambda is scaling up beautifully, but now it's swarming and overwhelming some on-prem resource that was never made to be able to handle the level of scale that Lambda can achieve. Lambda has a couple ways in which it can throttle you. We'll talk about them in more detail, but perhaps you were not seeing Lambda throttles at lower traffic or at um, lower spikes in traffic, and now your, both your traffic has increased and the peaks and valleys or how fast you spike in traffic has increased, and you're seeing flavors of Lambda timeouts you hadn't seen, or rather, Lambda throttling you hadn't seen before. And you know, for folks who work with uh, AWS for a while, uh, most, if not all, of the AWS APIs have some level of um, request limit throttling built into them. So in our architecture, we were interacting with Secrets Manager and CloudWatch Metrics directly um, from our Lambda code, but maybe now you're finding you're being throttled by those services where you weren't at lower scale. And this is a funny one, because if you're using the AWS SDKs to interact with any of our uh, services, by default, our SDKs have default um, retry with backoff if the SDK finds it's being throttled by one of our services. So the SDKs are intelligent enough by default, and this is configurable, but they're intelligent enough by default to notice, ah, I got a throttling error from calling, say, Secrets Manager. I'm going to retry. If I get throttled again, I'm gonna wait a little bit longer and retry. I'm gonna wait a little longer and retry until I get through. So the symptom here may not be errors thrown in your Lambda code. The symptom here actually may just be latency. That one line of code that was calling Secrets Manager may start taking longer and longer to respond as your traffic increases and suddenly you're being throttled by Secrets Manager or by CloudWatch Metrics or by any one, other one of our APIs. Now you can, if you enable debug logging on the SDKs, you can see when this is happening. It doesn't have to be silent, but um, you know, sometimes folks will see me talk about this and think that, oh, I'm not seeing errors thrown by my Lambda function. Well, that's not necessarily the symptom with the default behavior. And maybe your cost is growing in a way that you didn't expect based on your early forecasts from your smaller scale tests. So the two pricing dimensions for AWS Lambda are invocations and execution time. So maybe your functions are now taking longer to return, maybe because they're being throttled, maybe because they're overwhelming a downstream that's not responding as quickly as it used to. And so now your function's taking longer and longer and longer to execute which is leading to additional cost, because that's one of the pricing dimensions of Lambda. And then similarly, there are some ways, uh, some suboptimal ways that your code could be authored to interact with these services, CloudWatch logs and, and metrics, that could lead similarly to your cost growing in a way that may not have been what you expected based on your early tests. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a bit more detail. So what happened? Let's look back at that early architecture and try and figure out what its stress points were and why it started exhibiting some of these characteristics. So here's that same diagram again. So as Lambda scales out and we start kind of hammering that relational database with more queries than we were before, the load on that database starts to increase, which impacts query performance. And now, Lambda is 
waiting longer for the same queries to respond, perhaps because the database is under more significant load than it was at lower scale. And that's, of course, making Lambda run the execution time for a given invoke be longer, which is higher cost, right? The same code running the same query is now taking longer to respond because the database is under higher load than it was. As I mentioned, not only does longer execution time lead to higher cost, it also makes you more likely to bump up against those timeouts. So maybe you weren't timing out before because the database wasn't under the load that it is now, but now it is, and you're hitting timeouts you weren't hitting before. And you know, my architecture here has API gateway as a trigger for Lambda. I mean, same traits for whatever your architecture is, whatever is triggering your Lambda function. You may now find that if Lambda is overwhelming its downstreams, it's, your function may be um, taking longer to execute and be more likely to hit up, up against its Lambda function timeout, right? And when Lambda throttles you, and we'll talk in detail in a minute about the dimensions of throttle for Lambda functions, when Lambda throttles its caller, which in this case is Amazon API Gateway, that manifests itself as an error back to the API caller. So API Gateway experiences a throttle from Lambda and returns a 500 to the caller, right? So now the client has to retry. The client's experiencing errors he maybe wasn't seeing before. So maybe the symptom you're seeing is I'm getting occasional errors thrown from, uh, from my API, and it's actually because that, that function is throttling API Gateway. And again, maybe there were some um, suboptimal uh, there was some suboptimal code in our Lambda function that was interacting with some of those other services um, you know, in not the most optimal way, and that's causing the code to be throttled more often than it needs to be. So we'll dive into that in a minute as well. So to better understand how, let's do a little detour, um, how Lambda measures concurrency and for folks who've used Lambda, you know that um, there's a default concurrency. When you exceed that, you get throttled. Let's look at the Lambda documentation, see what it teaches us, or what it's trying to teach us about uh, how they measure concurrency. So the first time you invoke your function, Lambda creates an instance of the function. Okay, makes sense. When the function returns a response, it, being the execution environment, sticks around to process additional events. Okay, this is that kind of warm execution context you probably heard about. If you invoke your function again while the first event is being processed, then Lambda creates another instance of that function. So a given function is single entrant, right? If one is currently doing work on behalf of a request and another request comes in, we create another instance of the function and on and on and on and on. Here's the key bit. As more events come in, Lambda routes them to available instances, so ones that are not currently taking traffic, and creates new instances as needed. Your function's concurrency is the number of instances serving requests at a given time. What does that mean? Let's figure it out. Let's imagine I have a function that takes on average 200 milliseconds to respond. One invocation, 200 mils. That one instance can actually handle a throughput of five requests per second, right? Because it only ever, as soon as it returns after 200 mils, it can take the next one. So it can serially handle five requests per second with a concurrency of one. This is a common misconception a lot of folks have. They think, okay, my concurrency for Lambda, the default concurrency in a given region, say, is 1,000 concurrent executions. They say, okay, my, then that means I can only do 1,000 requests per second. Nope. You gotta understand how long your function takes to execute because a given execution context, depending on how long it takes to return, can handle multiple requests per second, right? So here we have one function instance handling five requests per second because of how long it takes to execute. So here's the formula. If you wanna estimate roughly um, how much concurrency you're gonna consume for a given workload, you say, okay, well, what's my average function execution time in seconds? Multiply that time as my average request per second, and then I'll get a rough estimate of the concurrency I'll consume. So for us, the math we just did was pretty straightforward. Uh, 200 milliseconds, so 0.2 seconds, times five requests per second equals one. So we'll be using, on average, one unit of concurrency. Now, the other thing that was kind of um, in the documentation there as well is that you can reuse 
some aspects of the execution. You can take advantage of the fact that you're getting a kind of a warm execution context across those invokes. And, there, and so anything that's outside of your Lambda handler, so the entry point for a given invoke, can be reused um, across executions for a warm container. Now, you can't count on it. You know, sometimes we're cycling our fleet or doing a lot of the things that are our responsibility as, as part of you know, us managing the infrastructure um, and all the servers beneath Lambda, but you can do things like you know, move either um, static data or HTTP connections, such as database connections, that you have to make outside of the handler function to try and take advantage of that execution context reuse across invokes, right? Something else I want you to observe about this kind of little arithmetic we're doing here is that given steady traffic, so imagine that you're always getting five, but probably not five, more like 5,000 or, or a much higher amount of requests per second. If your Lambda's taking a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer to respond, maybe it's overwhelming a downstream like we were talking about on the, a few slides ago, now your consumed concurrency is gonna increase. Given steady traffic, right? Or maybe you pushed out some new code that responds a little bit slower than it used to. Steady traffic, and you're gonna consume more concurrency if it takes you longer to respond. So again, maybe because you're overwhelming some downstreams in a way that you weren't before, you're consuming more concurrency, and when you hit your concurrency limit, you're gonna get throttled. All right, let's scroll down the docs a little bit, kind of keep reading what they have to tell us about um, how Lambda scales. So talking about bursting, bursts of traffic. For an initial burst of traffic, your function's concurrency can reach the initial level, initial level between 500 and 3,000, which varies per region, and you know, what it is for each region is in our documentation. After the initial burst, your function's concurrency can scale by an additional 500 instances each minute. And this continues until there are enough instances to serve all the requests or a concurrency limit is reached. So what, is that, what does that mean? Okay, so we're showing here, I'm kind of setting up a scenario here. So let's imagine, starting at the top above that graph, let's imagine we're starting out with just the regional defaults in the Northern Virginia region, which is the US East 1 region. So the defaults there are, uh, for Lambda and US East 1, a concurrency limit of 1,000 and a burst limit of 3,000. Those are the defaults. And let's imagine we have a function that takes on average one second to respond, just to keep the math easy. So now you can think of the y-axis on this graph as either the amount of concurrency you're consuming or the number of requests per second, because they're the same, given that it takes us a second to respond. So just to make the graph a little easier to read, that's kind of what the y-axis is showing us. And so what we're gonna do is move kind of left to right across this graph and see what happens. You know, initially we have, imagine, steady 1,000 requests per second. So we're using 1,000 concurrent invocations. And let's see what happens once we get a burst of traffic to 4,000 requests per second. And then that, that burst is sustained for several minutes. So let's see how we behave after a minute, two minutes, three minutes. So initial burst of 4,000 requests, throttled. What that means is there are 1,000 concurrent instances working, working, working every second, responding, responding, freeing up, and handling the next request. But any request above that, that you know, beyond, it, when all 1,000 instances are currently um, handling other requests, all the other requests that come in are getting throttles and the client's retrying, trying to get one of those 1,000 instances, you know, trying to get lucky kind of and get one next time they, they make a request. Same story as time goes on, right? Because we hit our concurrency limit. Our burst limit is higher by default, but we will go until we hit the concurrency limit. We hit it at 1,000, and so that's that. The client has to keep retrying, and we keep throttling. So again, if you're seeing, if, you know, depending on how the bursts of traffic are coming into your API Gateway API, for example, and again, my example uses API Gateway as the, the trigger into a Lambda function, but none of this is specific to that architecture. These, this is just the behavior of, of uh, throttling and bursting in Lambda. You know, these throttles are gonna be felt by API Gateway as errors return back to the caller. All right, let's make a little change to our scenario. We increased our regional concurrency limit in uh, US East 1, in the Northern Virginia region, to 4,000. And we still have a 3,000 burst limit. So the burst comes in, and we get immediate access to 2,000 more instances. That's our burst limit. We burst to 3,000. We were at 1,000. We got 2,000 more right away. 
Everything above that, throttle just like before. And again, you know, it's, these instances are handling one request per second, so they're freeing up every second and taking requests as they can, but those thousand requests that are coming in per second, if they don't happen to land on one of those containers that's available, then they're getting throttled and trying again after. After a minute, we can create 500 more instances, right? And so on. After minute two, we now have the full 4,000. That continues at minute three, and now we're serving our 4,000 requests per second. So this is what the documentation was talking about when talking about the burst behavior of Lambda. There's an initial burst, and then there's kind of the subsequent bursts you can do until you, you um, are sustaining traffic and no longer experiencing throttles or until you hit um, a limit. So let's see what's happening in the code we wrote to talk to Secrets Manager. Why are we getting throttled there? So here's some sample Python code. It's pretty straightforward. So we're on the first three lines grabbing from environment variables. First, the name of the database we want to connect to. On the second line, the username to use to connect to that database. We're pulling these from environment variables that were configured on our Lambda function. And third, we're actually getting the Amazon resource name, the ARM, of where to find the password in Secrets Manager. And then in the handler, we're going to Secrets Manager and saying, get me that secret, based on the ARM that we had on line three. And that gets us the password, assuming that our function has permissions to access that uh, secret, which it does. And then we use that to create a connection to the database, and we query and, and do whatever we need to do. Now, that Secrets Manager call, the get secret value call, this is a Python code, but under the covers, that's, it's using this get secret value API call against Secrets Manager. That has a throttling limit of 1,500 requests per second. Right? This means that once the traffic to our function exceeds uh, 1,500 requests per second, then now subsequent calls are getting throttled by Secrets Manager. Right? Now again, this may not be an error that's being bubbled out. This may just be additional latency on that call for any of the functions that happen to have that call be throttled by Secrets Manager, right? And the key here is that that line of code where we're going to Secrets Manager is happening on every function invocation because it lives inside of our handler function. Very similar story for CloudWatch metrics, right? So let's imagine we have some sample code here. Let's scroll down, maybe just the code we looked at a minute ago. And further down, you know, we executed the query using the connection we established on the previous slide further up in the code here. And maybe it's important for us to keep track of how many results are returned by each query. For some reason, that's important to, to, um, to our business. And so we are using the CloudWatch put, uh, put metric data call to write that metric to CloudWatch metrics as a custom metric. Now let's look for a second at how CloudWatch metrics prices that API call. So the put metric data API call, which is what sits beneath that put metric data line of Python code, is if you, if you kind of adjust the, the units for the pricing you'd see in the documentation, you'll see that it ends up being priced at a penny per thousand requests to that API call. Now for reference, if you have a Lambda function that's configured, and you know, Lambda does pricing based on, at least for execution time, based on gigabyte seconds of execution time. If you have a Lambda function that has a gig of memory allocated to it and runs for half a second, that function's also gonna cost you about a penny per thousand invocations. So what that means is if that function, that with a gigabyte of memory allocated that runs for half a second on average, writes a metric once like this, you're paying as much for the metric write as you are for the function to run. If it writes twice like this, you're paying twice as much to write the metrics as you are for the function to do everything else it's doing in the code. Now, there's a pretty easy way around this. The put metric data API actually supports batching of metrics. And you can put up to 20 different metrics per call. You can put lots of different data points. You know, there is a payload restriction, but you can fit quite a bit of data in there. So you can, you can really jam a lot more into that call to put metric data. The real problem here is we're putting one metric at a time. That's a really inefficient way to write metrics to CloudWatch metrics. And also, similar to the previous slide, CloudWatch metrics has API throttling of 150 transactions per second on that put metric data call. And so, Again, similar to what we saw with um, Secrets Manager, once you get above, with the code written this way, once you get above 150 requests per second, you're now gonna find that the requests are being throttled by um, CloudWatch. 
And again, the symptom may not be an error, it may just be latency of that call. So our architecture before really looks kind of like this, right? Really, that as that function scales out and out and out, it really exposes some inefficiencies in the way that either we had authored our code or interacted with some of these services. If you imagine a function that has, this is a pretty reasonable um, function that uh, executes on average in three seconds and gets 3,000 requests per second. Because of the arithmetic I showed you several slides ago, that's gonna result in about 9,000 concurrent invocations. That's could be, that could be 9,000 database connections, right? That could be 9,000 functions trying to grab secrets or trying to write to CloudWatch metrics, right? It's really important to understand the interplay between you know, the traffic you receive and how long your function runs and the concurrency and then how you've written your code and what that concurrency is gonna do to um, your, your downstreams and the other resources you interact with. So, what could we do about it? How could we have done things differently? What would have been the way to do this better? Let's try and do some of the easy things first. So, to start with, this is how, this is the, that same code we were using to interact with Secrets Manager to fetch the password to connect to our relational database. We're just gonna move the fetch of the secret out of the handler. Let's take advantage of that execution context reuse that we, that we talked about a, a few slides ago. And now, whenever a new function is initialized, the code that runs outside that handler function is going to be executed and then be able to be reused by any subsequent invocation of that handler for this warm execution context, right? Now, for some of you, um, you may want to refresh your secrets more frequently than whenever you create a new function instance. And for use cases like that, you want to use uh, perhaps an in-memory cache with an expiry policy that will you know, fetch from, in this case, Secrets Manager at a more frequent interval than just whenever a new function instance is spun up. And I've been talking about Secrets Manager here, but the practices are the same if you store your secrets in Systems Manager Parameter Store, for example. Now for metrics, we actually have some new features that can help you out. So a few weeks ago, the CloudWatch team released a new feature called the Embedded Metric Format to optimize how customers were publishing metrics to CloudWatch metrics. The way that this works is you log your metrics out to standard out in the case of a Lambda function in a standardized format, in the Embedded Metric Format. Now the format, the Embedded Metric Format has a specification, you can read all about it in our documentation to ensure that your logs go out in the correct format. And when they do, CloudWatch will be looking at the log stream for your Lambda function and picking out the metrics that were written in that embedded metric format and then optimally writing those to CloudWatch metrics on your behalf. Now, you know, this came out a few weeks ago. Before this came out, customers were doing something pretty similar. So the gist was just, I want to write my metrics asynchronously, and I want to do some batching and optimization outside of my function. So what customers were doing before is writing, very similarly, writing the metrics out in an, uh, a well-known format to CloudWatch logs, and then uh, streaming that to Kinesis, for example, and having a Lambda function maybe consuming off that Kinesis stream, and then doing this work themselves. And, um, you know, we don't want you to have to do any more work than you need to, so we listened to feedback and rolled that right into the, the CloudWatch service. So if you want to see what this looks like, it looks like this. So we have helper libraries available for a couple programming languages to make this much easier for you. This is some example Python code. So here I'm importing the um, embedded metrics library into my Python code. This is open source on GitHub. And um, you, I'm decorating my handler to give me access to write metrics in this way, and then I'm just putting metrics using that library. And um, that's gonna ensure that they get written out to my logs in the standardized format, so they get picked up after the fact. Okay. So we got the low-hanging fruit, uh, but what about this? What about the overwhelming of our downstreams? What about the overwhelming of my database? What about the timeouts on my Lambda function? 
So the question I want you to ask yourself is, does your API, do you need the response from the API? Do you need to be synchronous? So, and I mean this seriously. I, I think that um, there are some customers I talk to that say, well, of course I do. And you look at what they're doing and they're writing orders, and all they really need to know is that that message that they posted to the API was durably stored. They just need a 200 code back saying, yeah, we have it. We have this stored, it's being processed, but you don't actually need, it's not like you're executing a query against a database and need the results back right away. You're just writing data. So for write-heavy workloads, I just need to know that it's stored and it's safe and it's there, and I'll let the processing continue asynchronously, and I can, do my, I can continue with my work. So if that's you, then you can look at an architecture like this. So Amazon API Gateway has the ability to write payloads directly to SQS, directly to a queue. There's no hidden lambda there. It's direct API gateway to SQS integration. And so let's say you're posting orders or transactions or you're just writing data that you need to know is persisted. You can decouple the traffic against your API from the business logic being done in your function by putting a queue in between. And now you have a buffer that will buffer surges in traffic from your API from overwhelming your Lambda function and whatever the downstreams are. And you can have a dead letter queue on that SQS queue to catch failures, and you can use a feature of AWS Lambda called reserved concurrency, which will do what it sounds like. It'll reserve and kind of put a cap on the number of concurrent um, uh, invocations, concurrent execution contexts that will be allowed for that function. So you kind of reel in the scale and don't let it overwhelm that downstream. So the flow works like I was describing. API gateway direct integration goes to SQS. As soon as the message is stored, we return. SQS has the, uh, is an event source for Lambda, so direct integration between Lambda and SQS. Now, something else that's worth calling out is if you need guaranteed order, you can do a similar architecture here, but going to Kinesis instead, right? Because SQS will not guarantee order. But um, same idea. And you can use the concurrency limits, like I mentioned, to uh, control the scale on the back end. Now, since I'm showing you SQS, one other kind of quick optimization that I don't see as often as I would like to in, in my customer conversations is take advantage of batching in SQS. So if you SQS fully serverless, um, the, if you were to look at how it's priced, it's essentially priced based on the number of API calls you make to SQS, and many of those APIs support batching. Most importantly, um, you know, the getting and the pudding. So take advantage of that. Batch your writes and batch your reads. It's right there in the console. If you're configuring um, SQS as an event source for Lambda, you can say, I want up to 10 messages in my batch. Not only does that improve throughput, because you're pushing more messages through your queue, it also improves cost, because you're just pull you're pulling off 10 messages at a time, and the unit of, um, of, of metering for SQS is API calls. And there is some... Um, um, payload size kind of dimension to that as well that's worth considering, but a lot of folks will forget that um, SQS supports, supports both string payloads and binary payloads, which means you can push compressed data through SQS as well to further optimize your cost and throughput. And if after doing all of these optimizations, you're still under scale seeing timeouts in your Lambda functions, I want you to look at your functions and look for something like this. Look for a place where you're doing orchestration within your code. Maybe you're doing kicking off one thing, kicking off another thing, waiting for them both to complete, and then doing a third. Don't do that. Don't orchestrate inside your function. You never want to find your function sleeping. You're paying for execution time. Don't pay us for your code sleeping and waiting for things to happen. Instead, use a service that knows how to do that orchestration. Try and carve that code up maybe into three separate functions and use AWS step functions to orchestrate those maybe now three smaller Lambda functions and let step functions not only handle the orchestration, step functions has really rich support for retry logic and error handling. I mean, there's a lot of really nice stuff right out of the box there that you can get by using step functions for orchestration instead of doing it inside of your function code. And now, if you're using step functions and you carve up that code of yours, you may find that actually one of those, you know, one of that chunk of code that you've made now its own function isn't doing much more than talking to one of these services. And step functions has native integration with several other AWS services. And what that means is you may be able to take some of those new, smaller functions you created and replace them entirely with, with um, a native integration in step functions, and you have one less function to worry about, you know, fewer lines of code to deal with, just let step functions handle the interaction with that service for you. 
okay? Some of you are saying, okay, Roberto, that's great, but that question you asked me before, my answer was not, I, I can't just fire and forget on some of these things. I actually do need the response from my API call. So what can we do for you? So we have a few different options that we could use here. Um, API Gateway does have native support for throttling at the API level and at the method level. You could use that to throttle the traffic right at the API layer. Um, that will lower your overall throughput. That requires work on the clients to implement um, retry and back off, and it just generally impacts the client, so I'd love to not do that if I don't have to. I could look at other database types. So Amazon Aurora Serverless has a feature called the Data API, which allows you to interact with it um, via REST calls as opposed to via a traditional database connection. Now that requires you to be using um, Aurora Serverless, um, and there are some limitations there, so it may not be a good fit for you. You can also look at DynamoDB, which is our NoSQL database. It scales tremendously, can handle all the traffic you can throw at it, but that's a shift from, from a relational database to a NoSQL database, and that is a non-trivial change. So I don't want to sit up here and say, hey, just get rid of all your relational databases and go to Dynamo. That's not an easy ask, right? Something to consider maybe down the road. But I wonder if there are asynchronous patterns that we could look at instead to help us get the same behavior we need, um, but not be just sitting with an open HTTP connection through an API gateway REST API waiting for the response to come back from Lambda. Now before I talk about the async patterns, there actually is one other option that I didn't put up here and it launched yesterday in public preview. So there's a new uh, offering called Amazon RDS Proxy. This was announced in public preview yesterday and let's talk about what it does. So it will pool and share your database connections for you in the RDS proxy. So your Lambda connects to the proxy and the proxy connects to your database, right? The proxy will preserve the connections during database failovers. By that I mean the connections from your Lambda function. So the Lambda may not know that the backing database behind the proxy is failing over. It still has a steady connection, never interrupted, but the back, the database behind the proxy may be getting um, failing over. The proxy will also manage the credentials for you. So you can point the database proxy at Secrets Manager, where you have the credentials stored, and now the proxy gets the permissions from Secrets Manager, and you can connect to the proxy via IAM permissions. You can say that this Lambda function has access to this database proxy, and now you're using IAM to manage your permissions in the function. You don't have to. You can also connect to it using the same database credentials you were using to connect to the backing database, but now you have more flexibility. Some customers would rather say, my Lambda function has no awareness of the database credentials, only the proxy does, and the proxy manages getting them. It's fully managed, there's no provisioning, no patching, no management, this is just um, an endpoint that you connect to. So it is in public preview, so you'll, have, you'll see some limitations in the documentation around that. Specifically, it's only available for RDS or Aurora MySQL versions 5.6 and 5.7, so this may not be the silver bullet for you, um, even once it comes to GA. Also be aware that um, long-running queries are still gonna take a long time. Now maybe, maybe you had long-running queries because you were overwhelming the database, and maybe that's getting um, addressed for you to some extent, at least from a connection pooling perspective by this, this service. But um, you know, if you have queries that take minutes and minutes to respond, you'll still hit that API gateway timeout, right? And second, you may find that at sufficient scale, like this maybe buys you some more time as you scale up, but at sufficient scale, you may still need to consider going to a NoSQL database just for the tremendous scale you can get there after you've scaled up um, your relational databases out uh, best you can. So let's talk through some async patterns you may be able to use. Now before I talk about the patterns, I wanna do a quick refresher on um, S3 pre-signed URLs. So for folks who aren't familiar, the pattern here, the feature of S3, is that you can, using your IAM permissions, whether it's via a user or a role, generate a pre-signed URL for a given S3 object key, a pre-signed get or a pre-signed put. So you sign the get and put with your credentials. The URL you generate, the get or put URL, is only valid for as long as your credentials are valid or the expiration time that you set on the URL when you generated it. So if you use an IAM role to generate this pre-signed URL and your role expires, the link expires, also you can, when generating the URL, specify an expiry time and then it'll expire when you set it. Now the big um, warning here is whoever you give this link to can download the, the data from S3 or write the data to that S3 location. So be careful with what you do with this link. 
but it does uh, have some really nice use cases. I'm gonna use it in some of the patterns that I show you here. So the first and maybe most straightforward async pattern to understand is a simple polling pattern. So here what we're doing is you're having, now you have a few different API endpoints for this long running work that uh, you used to do synchronously. So you have one endpoint, some do work endpoint where the client submits the work to be done, maybe requesting, um, sending a query to, that they want the data for, and they get back a request ID right away as soon as we've durably stored the request for work to be done. Here, I'm actually using step functions to orchestrate some work on the back end, right? Maybe it's Lambda functions, maybe it's something else, um, but you can do a direct integration. Again, there's no hidden Lambda there. Direct integration between Amazon API Gateway and AWS step functions. So the backing service starts doing the work async, and now it's up to the client to hit a new status endpoint saying, how's my request, how's my request? Are you done yet, are you done yet? With that request ID that you've ended them. And API Gateway could directly check against step functions to see, hey, how's that workflow execution doing? How's it doing? Is it done? Is it done? Is it done? When the work is done, you write that output somewhere persistent. So maybe here it's S3. And then when the client now sees from checking the results endpoint, or rather the status endpoint, that the work is complete, they go to the get results endpoint with that request ID, and you return them back the output of that long-running query, of that long-running job that you used to do synchronously, but now, given these timeouts and things, um, you had to consider other patterns. So given that this is a talk about scale, there are a few considerations here I want you to be aware of. Uh, the first is based on your execution time, meaning how long does it take that backend work to run, that will drive you from whether that's a backing lambda function being orchestrated by step functions or, or multiple lambda functions, or if you're, if you're using another service that allows you to run containerized workloads like AWS Batch. Some throughput considerations as well. So, uh, in this architecture, API Gateway is calling step functions directly. Step functions has rate limits on how fast you can kick off new workflow executions. And API Gateway itself has a payload limit of 10 megs. So if you know that your payload can be bigger than that, if you know your payload is, can be, is always smaller than that, then you can, through the get results endpoint, return the payload right back through API Gateway. If you know it can be bigger, maybe you're using an S3 pre-signed URL to return that payload, and then the client has some amount of time to download their results. So benefit of an architecture like this, it can require some pretty minimal changes on your callers. So the code that's currently calling your API, that's now maybe today calling it synchronously, has some blocking code that calls your API, maybe waits however long it takes you to generate the results, and then when the results come back, they continue processing. Now they can similarly just block by polling, 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 seeing when the, when the data is ready, and then proceeding on after that. Um, so it can be relatively easy to wrap an existing backend with an architecture like this. Now, the downsides are that there can be a delayed response when, when the data gets back to the caller, depending on how frequently they're polling, right? If they're not polling very frequently, then they, the data may be ready, but, and they don't know about it yet because they haven't polled to see if it's ready yet. It's also more work for them and more work for you. Compute intensive for them to keep pinging you, compute intensive for you to keep checking to see if their work is done. So let's look at another pattern using webhooks. So for folks who aren't familiar, webhooks is generally the, it's kind of a callback pattern where you're calling back to an HTTP endpoint hosted by the caller to let them know in this case that, that the work is done. So the flow here is, and I'll come back to this step. So there's some optional trust you can establish with the caller to have you know who they are. Let's assume for the moment that you have established trust with them. So you've had them register themselves as a known caller of your API and you've vended them some token that they use to demonstrate that trust. So they provide that token to you to demonstrate who they are, and then their request gets put directly, in this case, to a queue to be processed asynchronously. And API Gateway returns immediately as soon as the request has been durably stored on SQS in this example. Now the backing service does its work. Here it's a Lambda function, churning away at some work. And the backing service can call back to the client when the work is complete. This is where the trust is important. So if you've already established trust, you, by that I mean you know who they are and you've confirmed that their endpoint is valid and owned by them, you can configure an SNS topic and already have completed the handshake with that HTTPS endpoint to know that they own that endpoint. So now you maybe can look at their client IDs, perhaps baked into like a JSON web token that they provide 
you know, when they first call you, so you know what their client ID is, and you know this client ID maps to this SNS topic. I'm gonna publish all their responses there, and I'll know that they'll go to the endpoint owned by that caller. Now, if you don't wanna do that, you can set up trust yourself, or you can choose not to trust. So, um, you know, if you have the trust set up initially, then you can either, again, have a dedicated SNS uh, topic per caller, or you can have multiple clients on a given SNS topic and use uh, subscription filters based on maybe that client ID to say, maybe I publish all my results to this topic, and then, you know, client ID one, two, three has a subscription filter such that, you know, when the message has that client ID on it, it goes to them, and then based on the client ID, it gets routes to different, uh, different folks. Now, if you don't want to do that, so you know, the, I'll talk a minute about the benefit of why you would do that. If you don't want to do that, you can have self-sign-up endpoints where they can you know, register themselves and sign themselves up with known endpoints. Um, or you can just choose to not do any validation on the URL. Um, you know, be, be careful of that. They could give you any callback URL, perhaps, in the request they send to you, and you want to not be sending their data to the wrong place if they give you the wrong endpoint, right? And then, um, Pretty similar story with the considerations at scale here as well, both around execution time, you know, 15 minutes being the timeout for a Lambda function, um, and payload size, in this case with SNS. SNS has a 256 kilobyte payload limit, so you can either, depending on what you know your payload size is to be, send the payload right back through SNS or use a pre-signed URL again. So no polling here, which is a benefit, less resource intensive for them and for us. We send back the results as soon as we have them. A benefit to using SNS here is SNS has a well-documented retry policy and recently launched support for dead letter queues so you can, uh, draw, you, know, you can keep track of the payloads that were retried and retried and retried and exceeded that retry policy um, and stopped attempting to retry. Now, if you don't use SNS, um, well, so first of all, this, a potential non-starter for a lot of use cases here is that it requires the caller to host a webhook endpoint, right? And um, that could, you know, there could be lots of architectures where that's not feasible or not reasonable to ask your callers to host a webhook. You need a documented retry policy so your callers know um, what their uptime needs need to be to ensure that they get the response of uh, their request. And as I mentioned earlier, for untrusted clients, you're responsible for uh, how you want them to demonstrate their trust. Okay, one more pattern I wanna sh show you here. This is a WebSocket pattern. So Amazon API Gateway supports REST endpoints, which is the one we've been uh, talking about so far today. It also supports WebSocket endpoints. For folks who are less familiar with WebSockets, this is a persistent bi-directional um, kind of open communication channel you can establish between client and server. And so here we're actually using both. We're using both API Gateways um, REST support and WebSocket support. And here's what the flow looks like. So the client submits the request and receives back actually quite a bit more than they did in some of the previous examples. They get a bunch of details about the step function's workflow execution that we kicked off behind them, or rather behind the, the API. Now the client, the caller, uses those details we return to them to hit the WebSocket endpoint to say, hey, I just kicked off some work. Here are the details of the work that I kicked off. Keep me posted on how it's doing. So you establish a WebSockets connection with those details. There's a little Lambda function that runs for, for um, WebSocket-based APIs that runs whenever a new client connects and can inspect the payload they submitted on Connect. The Lambda function goes back, and there's a step function's workflow on the back here that was kicked off when the work was first run. And what you're seeing beneath that little yellow dot is a parallel state in step functions. One side of it is doing the work, and the other side of it is waiting for the client to connect and start listening. So when the client does connect over WebSockets and the onConnect Lambda function fires with those details the client provided, it finds that execution and says, hey, the client's now listening. And so that now means that when the work is done and the client is listening, that's when we try and let them know the work is done. And we call back to them. That way we don't, we avoid the edge case of the work completing very quickly and us not calling back because they weren't listening when we were done. Yep. So again, some um, scale considerations here as well, some throughput considerations. We saw these on some former slides for step functions, but also just be aware of the payload limit for uh, WebSockets. And, and similarly to the other architectures, this 
will determine whether or not you're sending the response directly back over that WebSocket connection or giving them a pre-signed download URL to grab the uh, results. Benefits. We have an open connection with the client now. Not only can we tell them immediately as soon as the results are done, we can do more rich eventing over that open connection. So, you know, web and mobile clients are very accustomed to WebSocket, WebSocket connections for exactly this reason. So if that front end that's executing these long running queries is actually a web or mobile client, they'll be very happy with using a WebSocket connection for notifications of status updates on the backing work or being notified when the data is available for them to go and fetch. Now, the flip side of that coin is you have to be familiar with WebSockets and your clients or your callers have to be comfortable with that protocol. That could also be a non-starter for some of you use cases. You may have some clients that call your long-running synchronous API today that um, it, it wouldn't make sense for them to learn WebSockets just for a use case like this, right? Not all browsers support WebSockets and the Amazon API Gateway WebSocket support has a rate limit on how fast new connections can be established. And that's what it is there, just to be aware of. The link that I put there is actually a link not only to a blog post that goes very deep into this architecture, but that blog post itself also links to source code in GitHub that we posted for exactly how this um, architecture works. So if you want to look at it again, um, you know you have that link there to get really deep in, in how this is designed. So to wrap up, First of all, understand the scaling behavior of the services you choose. I understand that our documentation can be pretty verbose sometimes, and um, I still encourage you to have a look and understand what the docs will say about how some of these services scale. And load test, right? Don't take our word for it. Test the load that you need. These are serverless services. You only pay for the traffic that you drive to them. So drive some big traffic to it, make sure it works the way you expect. And then as soon as the traffic, the load test is done, you're not paying anymore, right? Try to decouple your components best you can so they can scale independently. Implement retry with backoff wherever you can as well. We do it in our SDKs. You should be doing it as well for interactions with anything that can be throttling you or have some throttling behavior. Leverage batching wherever you can. So the example that I showed was SQS. Very similar story for architectures I've seen that use Kinesis. Um, you can really uh, maximize your throughput through Kinesis by taking better advantage of um, you know, the payload rate, rate limiting they have there. Don't orchestrate your code in a single Lambda function. Not only does that increase cost, but it also increases some complexity. Try to use step functions, for example, to orchestrate that for you. And use asynchronous patterns wherever you can, again, to just kind of decouple and, um, your, your architecture. If you want to learn more, we have heaps of free training on AWS.training, including a new, brand new um, serverless architecture course that just launched. There's some great stuff there. I'll be down here to take some questions. Thank you all for coming, and please remember to submit your surveys.